So once you know its processes and that your goal is reducing back and forth messages, it opens everything up. Welcome to the Productivity is Podcast. It's me, Mike Vardy. And what do you think about a world without email? Well, today I'm going to talk to my friend Cal Newport, who is returning to the podcast to talk about his new book that makes that promise. Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload is the subtitle of his book, A World Without Email. And that world sounds far-fetched, exciting, radiant, out of this world. I don't know. You be the judge of that as we have this conversation. Let's get to it. Here's my conversation with my friend, Cal Newport, here on the Productivityist Podcast. I'd like to welcome Cal Newport once again to the Productivityist Podcast. Cal, thanks again for joining me. Mike, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. So I'm looking at the book right now, and if you're watching this on YouTube, you could see A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. And I was chatting with someone about this earlier today. Uh, they saw the book on my desk uh, and, and they, they said, wait a minute, what's that book? Is that Cal Newport's new book? I'm like, yes. And they said, uh, is it, can we achieve the promise of a world without email? And I said, you'll have to ask Cal. So I'm going to go right into that right away. Cal, is this a promise that can be, that you think can be fulfilled? A world without email? Or is there, as always, some nuance to it? I would say not only can it, uh, it 100% will be, right? I mean, to, to me, the book is just a matter of, are you going to be out in front of it and get some advantages for the first mover uh, advantage? Or are you going to be trailing behind? Now, the only caveat I have to get here is that I'm using email as a shorthand. Sure. So when I say a world without email, I don't mean a world in which the tool email doesn't exist. I mean, email as a tool is a fantastic way to send information. It's a fantastic way to send files. What I really mean we're going to get away from is what I actually in the book uh, elaborate into calling the hyperactive hive mind. So email enabled a way of work in which we just figure everything out on the fly with ad hoc unstructured back and forth messages. And I don't care if you're sending them via email or if you're sending them via Slack or if you're in a WhatsApp chat room. I'm actually technology agnostic when I come to this workflow. It's just this idea that we just figure things out on the fly back and forth. My argument in the book is that that has been a disaster. And that it's inevitable that we're going to replace that with approaches to work that are more structured, more bespoke, and that much more respect the human brain. So it'll be a world in which, you know, you have an email inbox. I mean, it's like, look, that's where my uh, my accountant's going to send me an invoice. Or I'm going to get a, a shipping notification on, yeah, great, it's good for that. But it'll play very little role in the back and forth collaboration I do during a typical day. When we last spoke, you told me that this was the next thing you were working on when we talked about digital minimalism. You can find that all the episodes that Cal's been on in the show notes for this episode, for sure. What was the reason that you said, I'm going to tackle the subject and and take a stance on this? Because email is easy. I think a lot a lot of people think like email, it's just that it's the thing we do. It's the thing that, you know, keeps the engine running. But, you know, as I went through the book and as, you know, I mean, as someone who looks at this stuff as well, um, your arguments are, are really sound. So what was the idea behind like, I'm going to take this on and, and, and full bore, I'm going to take this on. I've actually been working on this book since 2016 and I put it on hold, wrote digital minimalism and came back to this book. Some of the interview notes from this research for this book go back to pretty early in 2016. So I've been working out for a while. Uh, that date is significant because that's the year that deep work came out. Right. So I published deep work and deep work. I just, stipulated like, yeah, we know why there's less deep work, but we seem to be really distracted with email and stuff like this. And, and I didn't get into it in the book really. Why? I was like, yeah, we're, we, we know we're more distracted, but let me make a case for why, like we should care more about focus and how to train our focus, et cetera. And it was really the feedback from that book that, that people were saying, look, it's, it's not just uh, that. Yeah. We, we kind of spend too much time on email. This is what work has become. You do not understand Cal, the degree to which it's just inescapable looking at these inboxes. I mean, the fact that for a lot of people talking about work now fills up their entire workday and actual work gets done early in the morning or late at night. That is absurd. That is, it's like a Camus play, right? It's like we have completely spiraled out of control. So I started falling down this rabbit hole after deep work. Like, well, why are we, why, why do we work this way? You know, 
uh, it seems pretty bad. And I talked to some scientists and I talked to the, the people who study this. Like, oh, it's worse than I thought for our brains. Okay, so why are we doing this? And it was this huge, massive story, you know, the type of story nonfiction dream, writers dream about, that there is this, this way that we work, this hyperactive hive mind was essentially accidental. No one ever said it was a good idea. It's causing way more devastation than anyone thought. And uh, inevitably, it's going to be replaced by these much better things. It just was this huge story that seemed like it was going to affect half of the like North American working population during knowledge work. And so it took me four years to really uh, corral all of these forces. And I wrote another book in between and finally get it together into this sort of magnum opus on why do we work the way we work today, why it's bad and what we should do. Why do you think email just kind of took over? Like, what was the, I mean, we, as you go through the book, you talk about the case against email and then we're going we're to talk about the principles that are, that are needed. But as I went through the book, I'm like, how did this happen? Like, how did it become the, the thing that not yeah. only drives me, but also, I mean, you and I both know that people use email for task management, which is, which is like, to me, the most disconnected way to use email among other ways. So what, what happened? How do we get here to this point? Yeah, so I traced this beat by beat. You know, I, I went down a, a pretty big research path to try to understand. Uh, let's document starting in the late 1980s where the New York Times business section is still referring to email with a capital E in quotation marks, right? So let's make that one starting point, right? Uh, so what happened? Well, you see the spread from 1990 to 1995, it went exponential. Right. We had a pandemic of email, if, if I can use a sort of inappropriate mm. metaphor. And the reason why it spread is because it actually solved the real problem. Right. So if you're going to have a lot of people working in an office environment, communication becomes an issue. And I as I documented the book, I've also documented I, a lot of these ideas, by the way, for people who want to sample them. Over the last year or so, I've serialized a lot of these ideas in The New Yorker. So you mm -hmm. can find my New Yorker archive from the last year or so touches on a lot of these articles. So one of my first articles on this I wrote was called was email a mistake. And I document how the real issue that people had in offices was a fast asynchronous communication, right? So we had phones, which gave us synchronous communication, but you had to be there at the same time for us to talk. And there was some overhead involved in that. And we had inner office mail, which was asynchronous. I could send it when I was ready and it would sit in your tray until you were ready to read it, but it was slow. And so we needed, the silver bullet was, can we do asynchronous communication that's fast, right? Uh, we don't have to wait for a, a, a male person to come by with the cart. The demand for this was so high, I document how, you know, the CIA headquarters in mid-century, they actually built a pneumatic tube system. It was basically a, a pneumatic powered email system where you would literally, you could turn dials on these capsules and electromagnetic sorters would move them and you could send, it was like an air powered email system. So email solved a huge problem. Right. Uh, because we, we got voicemail at some point, but voicemail was high overhead. And so it solved a real problem. So it came in to solve a real problem. It almost immediately, everywhere it arrived, though, completely changed the work culture in ways that was not planned. No one thought it was a good idea. No one ever sat down and said, this is what we would do. It just, you could document this in some cases happening in days. It significantly increased the amount of communication that people started doing. And as far as I can tell, what happened was, and this is a whole other point we can get into, but for, but for reasons we can get into, in knowledge work, there's a real emphasis that productivity is personal, right? So we leave the task of figuring out how to organize your work to the individuals. We say like, you know, go listen to Mike's podcast, buy Cal's books. It's not our, we'll give you objectives, but it's up to you to figure out like how to get things done. So it's, it's a bit of a productivity free for all in the typical office environment. Email enabled the sort of lowest common denominator, but very easy and convenient and flexible way of work, which is, let me just take the ad hoc, unstructured back and forth way. I would, I would talk to you if we were in the same room and trying to do something. And with email, I can do that with everybody, mm -hmm. everybody in the office, all of our clients, all of our vendors, whatever. Uh, there's no system to learn. There's no overhead. There's no rules. And in a world where this is all left up to the individuals, we got stuck at this lowest common denominator solution to how do we organize our work in a digital age, which is like, I'll just do what I would normally do with a small group of people, but with everyone because this low cost, low friction tool makes it possible. And so by 95, it was almost everywhere. By 2000, you have people complaining about overload. So once it got here, it spread. Once it spread, it transformed everything into the hive mind. Once it transformed everything into the hive mind, we got stuck. And 
you know, one of the articles in the New Yorker you wrote about was the idea of personal productivity. You talked to Merlin, man, who I've, you know, followed for a long time. And the idea of inbox zero became this, which is interesting. And I've often said to people when they talk about inbox zero, like my email got to inbox zero. I'm like, and? Like there's, it, it, it's become a measurement of productivity, like you said, like the idea of, well, I had 360 emails, but I've left the office and I have no emails left in my inbox. And my my question, and I know that is, yes, but for how long? Because to your point, the idea of it's you talking to the world, but the, also the world is talking to you and there's only one of you. So you're managing all of these inputs. And it's, again, like you said, it's not just email, it's Slack, it's WhatsApp, it's all the social media direct messaging, not the actual news feeds, but the direct messaging. So um, can we talk a little bit about this idea of of the the, the personal component, part, like not having a framework? Because I think you're right. That was the biggest, one of the biggest downfalls. I, I can't tell you how many people look at their email red dot. And now it's become to the point where like, well, I have 10,363 unread emails it's game over versus the people yeah. that are like, I must get to zero because if I get to zero, I've been productive. Yeah. Well, Merlin Mann's story is such a, a perfect arc mm. that illustrates the dynamics at play, right? So here's someone, as I sort of uncovered in that article, he's working in the late nineties, email is doing the spread, hyperactive hive mind explodes. He feels completely overwhelmed, right? Yep. He helps kick off the productivity prawn movement where it's, uh, really aggressive personal productivity tactics supplemented with technology. So this was the big, the prawn movement. I really like the poll as you, I'm sure you remember, right? Uh, I was part of it. it, Right. So the promise was, the promise was not just that, you know, you could have really good personal productivity, but that if you, if you augmented it with the right computer tools, we would somehow reach this productivity nirvana. And we've talked about this on your show before uh, years ago. Um, So it was interesting after having those conversations with you to to go talk to Merlin about this. So he got really big on, okay, we're going to tame this. And he was one of the big, you know, we're going to use GTD augmented with tech and, and that's where we get eventually inbox zero. What's poetic about his story is that pretty soon after inbox zero and that talk, you know, goes viral is he has this realization that, you can't tame the hyperactive hive mind. Like you can't tame what it's producing. You can't keep up with it. You actually have to change the work itself so that it doesn't generate so much. Right. And he stopped doing uh, 43 folders and basically created a working life for himself from scratch that, again, that's what I think is so poetic, doesn't require much in the way of a productivity system because it doesn't generate nearly as much. He built this life around podcasting that that doesn't require him he doesn't use CTD anymore. He doesn't need it. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough. It, it's a it's a way he changed the work itself. And this, I think, is is a, a real good description of what's going on. You can't solve the problems of the hyperactive hive mind in your inbox. That's my big point. Like there's no amount of hacks or tips or norms or batching or anything that's going to completely solve this problem. You have to go under the inbox. And you have to take these processes that are generating all these messages that you have to keep up with and change them with things to generate less messages, mm-hmm. which is basically what Merlin did. We all basically need to uh, not literally do what he did necessarily and become podcasters, um, but metaphorically do what he did was I'm not going to try to just tackle the onslaught. I want to go down deeper and stop the onslaught from cr- being created in the first place. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons people don't do that is that they're afraid. There's a fear of if I do this, what will happen? What will happen to me? Will I be, um, will I be ostracized? And you you touch on this in the book, the idea of tribalism, like the idea of oh, um, I don't want to be left behind. I if I don't keep up, then um, I'm going to miss out on some things, and all of a sudden I'm going to be lost. Uh, and it it is fascinating because I think people try to do it bit by bit by bit. But what Merlin did, and it happened overnight. And I remember he went from someone who everyone looked to as like this to all of a sudden it's like, where'd Merlin go? Like it literally, that was literally how it happened. And again, the irony of GTD being the art of stress-free productivity, David Allen never had this in mind when it came to this. Like that was not his, his, he wasn't his, one of his mantras was when someone asked how many inboxes should I have? He said, as many as you need, but as few as possible, which again, gets back to that personal component Let's talk about uh, attention, some of the principles that you talk about in the book. And, and there's, there's 
there's the you know the the idea of the attention capital principle. I know you've talked about attention residue before, and I, I mean again, one of the things you discover when you spend a lot of time in this space is that productivity isn't about efficiency and effectiveness on its head. It's about you know for me, I believe it's intention plus attention, the marriage of those two things. Um, and if you have one without the other, intention without attention, I've said this before, is powerless. And attention without intention is aimless. And email puts that right at the fore. Like if you have, if you're paying attention to things you had no intention of paying attention to, all of a sudden you're like, where did, where am I now? Where did I go? So can we talk about that that attention capital principle and how important it is? I think for people to understand it so that they can apply yeah. it. Yeah, well, so I had talked about some of this earlier, like in deep work, I talked about attention residue. Yeah. But for this book, I said, okay, I need to become a world expert on this. Mm. So I spent time with the researcher who wrote the attention residue papers. I spent time with neuroscientists who understand and explaining to me like a child because it's very complicated, the neuroscience <laughs> of attention. Uh, I spent time with psychologists. I really wanted to understand what happens with our brain when we're working and different things happen. And one of the, 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 key message that comes out of there is that context switching is a big deal for the human brain. Mm -hmm. There's a whole process that happens where you have to inhibit certain networks in your brain and you have to amplify other networks in the brain. And it's, it takes some time. It's a messy analog process. And if you start to try to switch to something else and then you switch back, you get collisions. Like you kind of start changing, then you kind of change back. And it really reduces your cognitive capacity, worse than I even realized was probably true. Mm. The issue with the hyperactive high find is that it's a context switching machine. And it is a required feature of this way of working, which is, an, and I, I keep coming back to this point, is you can't solve this problem in the inbox. It's why people fail when they say, okay, my there's too many emails in my company, so I'm going to check it twice a day. Yeah. You know, or the reason it doesn't work is because the reason there's so many emails is that is how these are all different back and forth conversations that are moving things forward. This is the workflow in your company to get things done. So if you right. stay out of your inbox, bad things happen. That's why these type of things uh, actually change. So so if you're using the hyperactive high point, you have to keep checking mm -hmm. because you have to keep the asynchronous back and forth conversations moving to know when it's your turn to reply. You got to keep checking to see when their message comes in. So the average worker in like the rescue time data that I talk about is checking yeah. their inbox once every six minutes. That's what you need to keep up with a, a hyperactive hive mind. So you're constantly context switching. Mm -hmm. You know, glance at that, glance at that, glance at that. And it's the worst type of context switching because you're exposing yourself to many open loops that you cannot resolve in the moment. You're seeing a bunch of emails, most of which you can't resolve in the moment. All of those are starting to fire up new networks and inhibit others. And then you turn back to the thing you're writing. Then you turn back to the management decision you're trying to make. Then you turn back to the conversation you're trying to have. And your brain is all over the place. And I think we really intuitively feel that. It's that frustrating sense of foggy-headedness and exhaustion, that kind of cognitive exhaustion when you really are going back and forth all with your inbox. That's physical. Mm -hmm. It's your neurons. It's your neurons doing saying, hey, we can't do this. We can't every six minutes switch context and switch back, switch context and switch back. We are, we physically can't do this. And so like one of the big points I make is that way of working is getting you a minuscule return on the capacity of these human brains. This attention capital. That's the main resource in knowledge work. If you want to get a good return on that, you have to design the way you collaborate so that these brains can actually sustainably produce a lot of value. Making them check an inbox once every six minutes is a terrible idea you are getting a fraction of the possible value out of your own brain if you work for yourself or out of your your team's brain if you run a team or out of your company's main assets if you run a company. Well, and you talk a little bit about the idea of the Paul Graham essay, maker versus manager, and you throw a new kind of, uh, it's not so black and white. We actually talked a little bit about this before, the idea of the shade of gray, like that middle. And when I read that part, and I want you to touch on this as we as we explore this a little bit deeper, I thought, yeah, that was the part that was missing. That's the piece that no one really was talking. He didn't really talk about. Um, and it's I don't know why, um, probably because it wasn't something that wasn't the point of, of the essay. But you talk about the minder. So can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think when someone is saying, yeah, but I need to spend like I'm that person in the middle. I'm the person that has to the maintenance work and email is part of that. Um there's there's something to be said for understanding what the minder needs, right? Yeah, because because Graham was in the context of software startups mm -hmm. was saying like, oh, the makers, like which he meant coders. Yep. 
the makers need long periods of uninterrupted time because that's what you need to code. And he was just pointing out correctly. That's different than managers. Managers don't need long amounts of time, like four hours uninterrupted because they're not producing code. Um, so he made that distinction, which a lot of people would come back to me because of deep work, my book, deep work and be like, yeah, all of this attention residue and context switching. Yeah. Maybe if I'm a, a maker, but, but otherwise it doesn't apply to me. So I should just be in the hive mind. So I said, let's talk about the other categories. Yeah. We have managers. So people who actually are managing people. And I added this minder category it wasn't in Graham's distinction, but minders is a very big category of knowledge work where you're, you're providing administrative or logistical support, mm-hmm. you know? I'm, uh, I'm, I work in the HR department and I have to, whatever, make sure compliance forms are filed or answer questions. The units have th- th- these type of roles right. as well. And my argument is that this context shifting cost has a negative impact in all of those jobs. It's not just for the makers, the people who are doing deep work, the people who are, you know, writing poetry for four hours and really need to be undisturbed. If you're a manager, I document this in the book. And there's studies that show this. If you're constantly having to switch your attention to an inbox while trying to do your other management activities, like make decisions, talk to the person in front of you, figure out strategy, uh, you retreat from what they call leadership behaviors into what they call productivity behaviors. Mm-hmm. So you retreat away when you have a lot of email coming in as a manager, you retreat away from the type of stuff that's needed for your team to thrive and grow and just fall back to like tactical. Let me just like keep up with small tasks, right? It's a problem. Minders, we say, well, aren't minders supposed to be responsive? Yes, but they need to do it on their own terms. So if you're doing logistical support, the actual, the, the way to be most effective is to follow the IT support model where they use a ticketing system, which is I'm not in a free flow conversation with everyone who has an IT question going back and forth while I'm trying to fix their problems. Their issues go into a ticketing system. I then take a ticket that I'm well suited for and I work on that exclusively until I'm done. And then I update that ticket. It sends an update to the person. And then I say, what's next? And I, so I argue for people doing administrative or support work, that is the ideal way to get the most out of your brain. One thing at a time, work on it till you're at a stopping point, move on to the next thing. So the hyperactive hive mind of I have to do this checking in parallel to everything else can be just as devastating to managers and just as devastating to minders, even though these aren't people who need to do, you know, seven hours in a row of deep work. Managing passwords can be a real headache, right? Think about it. Every website requires a new password. Each one needs to be unique, secure, and somehow memorable. But there's a better way. Welcome to the world of 1Password, where your entire company can generate strong, unique passwords, store them securely, and access them across any device without ever needing a reset. Imagine never having to click Forgot Password again. With 1Password's award-winning design, managing passwords becomes a breeze for you and your entire team. It's trusted by millions, including top companies like IBM and Slack. Here's the best part. My listeners can try 1Password for free for two weeks. Right now, get your free trial at onepassword.com slash productive convo. Secure your passwords and simplify your online security with 1Password. Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. Meal planning is important because it prevents us from being a disappointed wreck when dinner time comes around and we have no clue what to make or even if we have the ingredients to make the meal. It's a time and a money saver, but most importantly, it frees up valuable brain space. Creating a meal plan prepares us for the week to come and gives us peace of mind that we're organized and can feed ourselves and our family. That's why I do it, and that's why Plan to Eat helps me do it. 
Your subscription includes access to the Plan to Eat website and fully featured mobile apps on iOS and Android. And Plan to Eat gives you the tools to clip and organize recipes from any website, the ones your family loves and that fit your dietary preferences and needs. And you can create a meal plan around your schedule. Then what happens is the Plan to Eat software automatically creates an organized shopping list based on your plan. So sign up for your free trial at plantoeat.com slash timecrafting. That's plantoeat.com forward slash timecrafting. The coupon will be automatically applied to your account and can be used when you're ready to subscribe. It's valid for new customers only. Give Plan to Eat a try today. And now let's take a break from my conversation with Cal Newport to talk about our sponsors. Planning meals is a big part of my productivity planning day, which is every Sunday. My wife and I, we sit down and we plan out our meals. But as with any plan, things don't always go according to plan. The weeks change. You know, my daughter might have to work or any number of things can throw this plan into chaos. And what we're looking for is something that's convenient and flexible and easy, and it's not going to cost us too much. And we're going to end up eating healthy as a family all in one go. Well, if you're looking to do the same, then you want to check out Green Chef. Green Chef makes cooking easy with dinner options that work for your lifestyle and not the other way around. Green Chef has ingredients that come pre-measured. They're perfectly portioned and mostly prepped, so you can spend less time stressing and more time enjoying delicious home-cooked meals. Recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. And they offer nine meal options every week for each plan, so you can switch up your plan whenever you're ready to try a new way of eating. And Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit as well. With Green Chef's wide variety of high-quality, clean ingredients, you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. And if you are into specialty diets, well, Green Chef has you covered there. Green Chef is the best meal kit for those who follow keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or pescatarian diets. That's really important in my household. And I have to say that some of the meals that you can get with Green Chef are phenomenal. So here's a plant-powered recipe that I'm really interested in checking out. The Portobello Steak Salad. I've been reading Rich Roll's The Plant-Powered Way, and I've been listening to his podcast, and this just speaks to me. There's also plant-based protein tacos. My kids love tacos. That's another great one. So that's if you're going plant-powered. If you just want keto and paleo, well, they have creamy chicken alfredo. We love pasta in our household. That'd be a great place to go. And also there's the Italian shrimp and creamy rice. That's another great one. We love seafood. There are so many options that you can choose from when it comes to Green Chef. Now, I want you to take advantage of what Green Chef has to offer. Clearly, they are stunningly great at what they do. And so what I want you to do is go to greenchef.com slash 90 timecrafting and then use the code 90 timecrafting to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's stunning, just as stunning as the recipes and the service and all of the things you're going to get with Green Chef. So again, I want you to go to greenchef.com slash 90 timecrafting and then use the code 90 timecrafting to get $90 off and that includes free shipping. You've got to give Green Chef a go. It is the number one meal kit for eating well, and this offer makes it a no-brainer. Again, go to greenchef.com slash 90timecrafting, enter that promo code 90timecrafting, and get that $90 off, including free shipping. Check out what Green Chef has to offer you and your family today. You've heard me rave about Text Expander before, and I'm not going to stop raving about Text Expander because Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so that you can focus your time on your most important work. With just a few keystrokes, Text Expander keeps you consistent, accurate, and working efficiently. Work smarter, not harder with Text Expander. You can speed through emails, expand forms with the fill in the blank fields just using a quick abbreviation. It's a fantastic, fantastic shortcut. It's it's super productive for you to use that one. Time saving power is also part of what Text Expander has to offer. See, you can use Text Expander's powerful shortcuts and abbreviations to streamline and speed up everything 
that you type. Uh, my address, that's in there. Uh, you know, my uh, email addresses, the actual email addresses, because productivity is, t- it's not just hard to say, it's sometimes hard to spell. Text Expander, make sure I'm seamless with it and fast every single time. You can get your message right every single time with Text Expander. Just expand the content that corrects your spelling and keeps your language consistent, all with just a few keystrokes. I can't say enough great things about Text Expander. I want you to experience them for yourself. All you need to do is visit textexpander.com slash podcast and you'll get 20% off your first year. I have renewed Text Expander year in and year out for years. And this is a smoking deal for you. It is a productivity powerhouse that you want to have in your toolkit. So just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to get 20% off of your first year. Make sure that you choose the Productivity is Podcast from the drop-down menu. That way they know you heard it from me here raving, raving about Text Expander. Again, work smarter, not harder with Text Expander. Take advantage of this offer today. Go to textexpander.com slash podcast. Get 20% off your first year right now. And now let's get back to my discussion with Cal Newport here on the Productivity is Podcast. As we keep coming back to the hyperactive hive mind, and I, and I really love that analogy. I've been nerding out. We talked a little bit about this before we recorded about WandaVision. And you're like, wait, what? Why are we going down the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I have not watched that show, Mike. But one thing that comes up a lot in that show, the symbol of the hexagon. And hives are, hex- like a beehive is a hexagon because it's the strongest. And I've been nerding, like I said, I've been nerding out about this stuff. And what's interesting about the 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 hive mind, and I think it's apt, is that, you know, there's a lot of construction used with 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 hexagons because it's you know it's strong the angles are strong um you know so if you try to push and break it you've got two opposing angles that are very strong that are keeping that from happening if you try to pull it's and that's kind of what happens with this hyperactive high mind there's no real escaping it and like you said you've got to get underneath the problem to figure out um so who has to get underneath it i guess is the big thing like where does that where can we start to solve that problem? Because the pull is strong and the push is just as strong. Yeah. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. This the problem with a personal focused productivity system is that uh, the mathematical term is it's a suboptimal Nash equilibrium. No, there's no change that any one person can make that's going to improve their situation. So mm-hmm. if we're all in a team and a company using the hive mind, we're on Slack all day and I call it a hive mind because the idea is like, well, everyone can kind of just talk to everyone at all times. So yep. it's like everyone has access to everything. Right. And it's hyperactive because of the quantity. Uh, if I just say, I'm going to stop using Slack or I'm going to use it much less. It doesn't work because everyone else is still communicating, collaborating that way. So now I'm out of the loop and making people's lives bad. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm screwing the, everybody you're, else. You're the bottleneck now. I'm, you're a bottleneck. I'm the bottleneck. Yeah. So how do we fix it? Well, there's the optimistic sort of bigger picture pitch. And then I'll give you the sort of like down and dirty hack that we can do in the meantime, right? Sure. So the optimistic picture is I say what, what we got wrong with this personal productivity thing, which came from Peter Drucker, mm-hmm. you know, who, who argued starting the fifties, knowledge work is not industrial work, autonomy, autonomy, autonomy to his death in the 2000, he was writing autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. He was right in that the actual execution of knowledge work should be autonomous. We cannot break down how I write code or add copy into step-by-steps, right? Mm -hmm. He was right about that. But the workflow that surrounds all that work, like how do we figure out what needs to be done? Who's working on what, how we're going to make sure they have the right information that needs to be, a team effort. And that's where we can optimize and say, okay, how can we support you doing this work in such a way that uh, eliminates the need for you to have to do lots of back and forth messaging. So ultimately the solution is the organization has to come down and say, we're not going to tell you how to execute your work, but we're taking all these implicit processes, the, you know, get an ad ready for ad review process, the get a client deck ready process. And we're going to think about them as a team or an organization. and, And we're going to put in place more structured things here that don't require just like keep checking an inbox and send messages back and forth. So you, you change the processes that are generating all these messages with processes that are more structured that generate many fewer messages. And that's ultimately how you escape the hive mind. So you leave the autonomy and execution, but you put a lot of structure into workflow. Uh, the great example of people who do this already is software developers. If you look at an agile shop, 
no one's telling a programmer in an agile shop, here's how to write your algorithm. Right. You know, there's no Frederick Taylor, like, okay, you have seven <laughs> seconds to write your variable declarations. No, you, hey, however you code is how you code. However you want to set up your Emacs or, or your, your Vim or whatever, it's up to you, right? But how they figure out who should be working on what, Oh, they've got a scrum board. They've got a scrum master. There's a daily standing meeting. They're like obsessed about it, right? They're the incredibly soft, structured. Yeah. yeah, the software yeah. gets used a certain way. Like, you know, you have almost like a charter of sorts because like you're saying, it's company, like when you, as soon as you add more people, it's, you have to have an objective workflow, but you can work yes. subjectively inside of that. And that's where that kind of works. Yeah, so exactly, right? So so in, uh, in software, we see what that actually looks like. And so, uh, the big picture optimistic solution is in all types of knowledge work. We have whatever the bespoke equivalent is of that for that type of work, you know, right. okay, Hey, we, uh, all of the information for each client, this is an example from the book. We have a marketing firm. We have a Trello board for every client. Uh, the Trello board has all of the information relative to that client attached to cards. We can see what's coming up, what we're working on now, what's its status. When you're working on that client, you can just be in the world of that client. Everything's on this board, not in a general purpose inbox. You work on something, you update the card, and then you can move on to a new board when you're ready to do a new client. That's like a, a an example from the book, and it just made everything better because it used to be I'm in my inbox, like kind of working on this and kind of working on that. What do we do in the short term? Let's say you work for a company where they're not yet doing that because they haven't yet read my book. And of course, when they do, they will. But, you know, it takes time for it to, to get shifted. So what are we going to do in the, in the meantime? Well, you can actually make progress on this unilaterally once you understand the goal. And like what I advise people can do in the meantime is basically take a day as you're going through your inbox, every email that you answer, ask yourself, what's the actual process that this email is related to? Like what's the, re the, the repeatable thing that I do that produces value that this email is about? And just like write these things down, mm -hmm. right? And you realize like, oh, there's like 10 or 11 processes that I repeatedly come back to. Right now we just use the hyperactive hive mind for all of them, but I can name them. Now you can start saying, how can I optimize this process? Just given what I can control, I can't change other people, but just given what I can control, how can I optimize this process to minimize the back and forth message required to actually successfully produce value? Even just looking at what you can control, having this process mindset and this goal of reducing back and forth messages, you can significantly reduce what's going on with your inbox without ever having to have a, a sanctimonious speech to your coworkers without having to have autoresponders. that's going to piss everyone off. Right. You just, just kind of do it, you know, and people don't, people are busy. They don't realize like when they, when they get an email from you, that's like, okay, great. We got to get this together. Here's what we're going to do. Um, I'll have a draft in our shared folder stock by Tuesday at 12. Then give me your notes. I'm going to grab it Wednesday at noon uh, to work on it. It will then be back in there by Thursday morning uh, if there's anything that requires a discussion, I have an office hour Zoom from, you know, on Thursday afternoon. So just stop by if you need that. And then I'll grab whatever status in on Friday afternoon to submit it. Like they don't even realize that you've thought that through. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, here's a way to get this done that requires us not to send email messages. They just sort of see that. And it's like, yeah, it seems like a reasonable plan. I'm glad he's thinking about it so I don't have to next. Right. But you've just eliminated a dozen messages. Scale that over 10 processes that are generating, you know, two or three things a week. And you've just made your inbox, the, the load of back and forth in your inbox significantly lower. So you can kind of do this overhaul asymmetrically while waiting for the more optimistic solution, which is, okay, what's our scrum? Like we got to just change as a group, how we actually organize our work. You know, it's, it's interesting because it goes from death from a thousand cuts to maybe death from a hundred or, but you can at least manage that too. It's, it, you know, whenever I get, uh, emails from podcast interview guest requests, right? Uh, there is a, for the longest time, it was like, oh, I got to, I, I wanted to answer every one of them because I wanted people to know that I at least, you know, looked at them. And I'm like, I can't do this the same way every single time. So then I just, this is where the old school, you know, okay, I have text expander, I'll create a template for it. And it was a very generic template, but I was able to insert boilerplate comments and so on and so forth, which you could do with what you're talking about here. You could say, okay, this is what the process looks like. But then eventually it got to a point, and this is why I, I'm bringing this up because it's very important. It got to a point where the loads got, because the po podcast got more popular and more people asked. And so I'm like, okay, I need to eliminate this now because now the template is, um, it's not saving me as much time as it used to. It's now, the load is is getting, you know, more challenging to bear. So all I did was I created a web page that just said, you know, you can email us, but if we don't respond, kind of like I, I, you talked about this, I believe in deep work with Neil Gaiman and his writing, you know, like I don't respond to emails. So 
don't bother emailing me or I think that was it, it might have been someone else but along the same lines my point is is that this is not a one and done proposition right like even if you're going to try to solve some of this on your own while you wait for the hyperactive hive mind and your company to kind of okay we need to put these processes in place it's not a stand pat okay I've made, I've solved this problem therefore I never need to think about it again right like you need it's something that you need to kind of um, nurture and cultivate consistently right yeah, it's a mindset. Yeah, it's a mindset. And once once you understand what the game is, okay, we're, knowledge work is actually processes. We just don't name them, but they're there. You know, the the talk to uh, aspiring podcast guests who send emails, like it's a process. Mm-hmm. And you said, okay, what what am I doing here? Well, I'm kind of hyperactive, high minding. Like I just kind of respond to everyone, and and you know, and you're like, okay, actually. If I want to optimize this process, I realize it's probably the cost benefit analysis says I should have a website that says like, I can't respond, you know, um, significantly reduce the back and forth message. So once you know it's processes and that your goal is reducing back and forth messages, it opens everything up. And I think this was one of the missing, this is one of the missing pieces in our email frustration that when you're just looking at the inbox, you're just thinking, how do I better organize this mess? How do I get through this mess faster? Can text expander help me write it faster? Can I use superhuman instead of Gmail? And then I can with like keystrokes, like really yeah. move through it. Gmail is like, we'll use AI to help you sort your messages. Um, but I mean, to me, that's, that's like you're in the sinking ship and you're like, we got these better buckets and and uh, we well, have four buckets. They we have break. an auto bucket. They break yeah. too. Like, I mean, you set up a filter in Gmail and something slightly off kilter happens and you miss, you, I mean, well, that filter might not work. I might miss an email. Like there is some and, elements of technology that, so the best technology is often up here once you've thought about it, like you said. Yeah, I don't. I don't need a better bucket. I need to plug the hole. Right, is basically what's happening. Right, and so once you know that's the game, that email is great for sending stuff. It's like really good mail. It's like a much better version of mail, mm-hmm. but should be used kind of for the same thing that you used to use the mail for. And realize that it's not great for asynchronous back and forth conversations because it just doesn't scale. No. You can't. It, it doesn't scale. So much innovation becomes possible, as you said. You have it up here. I mean, it's not tricky often and it's an evolving process and you have to keep shifting as different things change but once you think it's processes minimize back and forth processes minimize back and forth it can be night and day uh, and it's not even the volume of messages in your inbox you're trying to solve it is the how many ongoing conversations are active right now that are going to require me to respond and therefore i have to keep checking to see if it's my turn to respond that's the killer mm-hmm. i mean i don't care if i get a thousand newsletters in my inbox. I mean, I, I might be annoyed, like, oh, I'm kind of overwhelmed by newsletter, but that's not what's killing my productivity. What's killing my productivity is that I have 10 ongoing back and forth conversations. And if I wait a few hours, there might be seven of them where, hey, tag I'm it and I'm not getting back to them. And these, we need to get this done. We need to schedule the thing, right? And it's going to take four and five back and forth. So we can't wait three hours. Now you have to constantly check yeah. and that's where you get hurt. Uh, Cal, before I let you go, um, what is if someone's going to take action on this right away? If they want to get closer to a world without email, and again, we're talking email is the generic term that you're using to talk about like Slack, WhatsApp, like any of these communities. What's one simple action that they can take today after listening to our conversation or watching it on YouTube uh, that that can get them closer? Right. So to to help shift to this mindset of it's all processes, and I'm trying to change the processes to minimize back and forth. I usually suggest like let's do an easy, low hanging fruit win. So that you 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 get a visceral sense of, oh, this can really make a difference. And the, the lowest hanging fruit for most people is getting some sort of meeting scheduling process in place. Get a tool like Schedule Once or Calendly or however you want to do it, but say, okay, here's my experiment. The first process I'm going to try to make is that uh, one message scheduling, that when I need to set up a coffee or a meeting or a call or a Zoom with someone I work with or a client or a vendor – that I have some process in place that allows me to not have to go back and forth. I yep. can send them one link. I can send them a shared document. I don't care how you do it. That one change will give you a, because that turns out, I talked about in the book, that that has a meeting scheduling has a disproportionately oh, like negative yeah. impact for, for various reasons. So you just change that one process. It's easy to do. You will immediately feel that one stupid thing made a huge difference. And that will spark, I think, a commitment to like, well, what else? Right. What else in my world right now can I do similar things from? So that'll give you the, that'll give you the taste uh, that is going to make you an addict. It's surprising because when I send people a link to I use Woven as my calendar of choice, and it's it's like when people say like, "Where'd that come from? How do I do?" Like it's it's surprising to me, and it shouldn't be at this point. But like so many people just don't think about it. Like they don't even so many people don't even know about these tools, despite the fact that you know we live in a world where 
you know, we've spent our time online. We understand them. There's a lot of people that don't know Calendly, Acuity, Woven, what have you. Those, you're right, that quick win, like, oh, I don't have to have this. Well, let's meet at this time. Well, how about this time? Or even Doodle, because Doodle has the, yeah. the group meetings. Um, it's fascinating to me that I think we have to, people in our position definitely have to be uh, understanding that we live in that bubble that we see this stuff all the time, but there's a lot of people that have no clue. And that one thing that to us seems common sense or common ground for them is just a game changer yeah. for them. And and just like a quick point to that, keep in mind when you're doing this optimization is that you're not trying to necessarily minimize the total amount of time. Right. Like if you added it up, the total amount of time it takes to do something, it's the back and forth. My quick example on this is if I compare my book tour for my last book to this book, for my last book, when I was doing like media booking stuff with my publicist, I minimized the time by set up Acuity that had access to my Google Calendar. I put in all of my availabilities. I liked Acuity because if I book something on my calendar, it automatically takes that time off the table. Yeah. My publicist had access to it. Uh, so then she could just directly book. So it minimized my time to zero, right? She just directly would book things. But I didn't love it because my calendar is subtle and they have rhythms. And I actually like to have my fingers involved a little bit more and when things get scheduled, right? Because I don't want to overbook some days. And there's mm. stuff I know that she doesn't know about, like, you know, I have a busy day with my family or something. So we went to another plan where there's like a shared doc. And I'm actually scheduling things now, but I just do it twice a week. I sit down and she's put all this stuff in a shared document and I do all the scheduling and then she updates the document. This takes more time, but it doesn't generate back and forth. And in the end, that's the only thing that mattered, right? So yeah, now I spend more time thinking about when I schedule and I get a better outcome out of it. That wasn't a big issue. That doesn't make my life worse. The thing that would make my life worse is having to do a lot of back and forth. So that's the only other thing I, I caution is like what you're going for here is ongoing back and forth. That's what you want to get rid of. Uh, if there's more overhead, if it takes more time up front, if when you do, if, if it's now once a week, you have to spend 20 minutes as opposed to two minutes on an email a dozen times a week, that is fine. Time is not the problem. Mm -hmm ongoing back and forth. So well, that's my, my subtlety I'll give as people head down this journey. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is keep in mind that not everybody's going to like, if you're going to do the meeting strategy thing, I know that when I like, so for example, I think I'm pretty sure I sent you my scheduling link. Um, but you have to understand again, each, each situation is different. I think too, that's another thing is when you have this clarity, then you can say, okay, I'm asking someone to be on my podcast I'm not going to send them my link necessarily. I might ask them for theirs. So then it creates more of a, I mean, that's where you can infuse the personal, right? Because if I, I know I sent to one gentleman once, I think I said, I'd love you to be on my podcast. Like, yes, I would love to. I'm like, well, great. Here's my booking link. He's like, well, but you're asking me. And it was like, oh, you're right. I mean, if I'm asking you, then I should be willing to have some give on what I'm willing to have happen. But if someone asks me, then there's, the, so it's, it's, there's one set of rules for this, but maybe you have to kind of have the exceptions to the rule. But once you put something yeah. like this in place, then you can play with that, right? Yeah, you can play with it. And of course, the hack with the meeting scheduling, just because we're talking about that, is uh, when this is the business hack, when you're, you're, it's like your boss. Right. Uh, and you're, you're sending them a scheduling link. It's the, the hack is all you have to do is say, um, I know your time is really valuable, so I don't want you to have to go back and forth. So I've just listed here like every single time I'm available mm -hmm. so that you can just pick whatever one is best for you. Yep. And it just, it is a little bit of verbal judo and it turns the whole thing around. So they're like, oh, wow, you're it's really, true. you're really going over and uh, over and above to make my life easier, Mike. I really appreciate that. But I, your bigger point is taken, which is, and I get into this in the book, the interpersonal dynamic should not, they're, they're subtle. Mm -hmm. And, and I get into it in the book, like what's the right way? Like don't have an auto responder that explains all your systems. For example, there's real psychological reasons why you don't want to do that. It's going to rub people the wrong way. Yep. And so I think that's a good point is you know what you're trying to do. Now you have to bring some humanity to it and be pretty careful about how you, and, and I, I, so I spend some time with this in the book is you have to navigate these interpersonal social dynamics so that you, it can't be, I'm reducing my load by making you do more. Right. You just have to make sure that what you're doing never comes across in that way. And actually, honestly, like the best way to do it for most things is just don't explain to people what you're doing. Just do it. Yep. <laughs> it's better, and, well, no, it's better true. to apologize yeah, yeah. for something that people are actually <laughs> upset about than apologizing in advance for something that people didn't realize they needed to be upset about. Yeah. And it's true. And again, to the, the, the earlier point where I said, most people don't know these tools exist. When you send somebody that and you're like, well, you know what, here, here's my calendar. Go ahead and book what you want. They're like, oh my goodness, they're giving me all this time, but they don't. Yeah 
don't yeah. get to see that you've blocked off a bunch of time for, say, deep work or other things that you don't. And so they see this landscape of like six or seven appointments. Again, interpersonal, if it's your boss, might go, well, wow, look at all the available time they have. I wonder what they're doing. So it's it's it, the nuances is fascinating. But unless you have a framework, then the, the nuance doesn't really matter. Like you have to have something there. Um, Cal, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking the time again today. The book is called A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. We're going to put it right there uh, for those that are watching. Um, where can people pick up the book and where can people keep up with you and your work? Also, give them your email uh, well, address. No, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My personal email address, which you should use at any time, is uh, Mike Vardy. Uh, <laughs> productivity is not... Um, yeah, as your longtime listeners know, I'm not on social media. I'm, I'm sort of, and I'm not very easily reachable, but I'm easily findable. So you can get the book anywhere you find books. You can uh, see my my email newsletter slash blog at calnewport.com. And I have a podcast, Deep Questions, where I all I do is answer questions from my readers and listeners about all this type of stuff. So if you want to geek out on deep work and productivity, but living the deep life and balance, blah, 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 all the types of stuff you think that might I might talk about or I've written about, digital minimalism, et cetera, uh, in that podcast, we get, we get into it twice a week. Cal, this has been great. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Productivity is Podcast. All right, my pleasure as always, Mike, and uh, go Bengals. <laughs> so do you think that you can live in a world without email? Can we make that happen? I suggest you pick up the book, A World Without Email, Reimagining Work in an Age of Communication Overload. As always, Cal is a fantastic guest. He's a great writer. I was absolutely elated that he agreed to join us on the program today. And you can listen to the previous iterations of him appearing on this podcast by going through our archives. And the easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the podcast. Because you see, when you do that, then you can easily find all of the 350 plus episodes that have preceded this one, including guests such as Gretchen Rubin, Seth Godin, Derek Sivers, Keith Ferrazzi. The list goes on and on. And Cal Newport twice. In fact, one of his partners in crime when it comes to building things, Scott Young, has also been on this program to talk about ultra learning. If you're going to learn anything from this little preamble or this postamble, learn that you subscribe to this podcast. You could do this on Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Just hit the subscribe button. That way you don't miss a single episode. But also, you can find any episode that we've produced up until this point. That's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me. Until next time, I'm Mike Vardy, the host of the Productivity is Podcast, reminding you to stop guessing and start going. See you later.